Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. How many of us, and Jan, you'd be in this category, have too much junk lying around? Now, instead of getting rid of it, we often store it away in a storage facility. And believe it or not, that's the setting of today's book, Disappearing Off the Face of the Earth by David Cohen. So, David, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, your book goes beyond the storage of physical items in many ways. Storage for the soul. I mean, uh, if we can look at uh, page 101 there for a minute, I've got it here. Uh, He took the sheet of paper from my hand as if relieving me of a loaded gun. I've never told you this before, but I want to tell you now. I have this idea that all the people who've disappeared off the face of the earth, the people who disappear and are never found, all go to the same place. He pointed to the picture of the building, this place. I had no idea how to respond to that. All I could come up with was, but didn't you tell me a while back that it's just a rendering of a place that's yet to be built? Exactly. In this world, it's just an ideal. It doesn't exist on Earth. It exists out there somewhere in the beyond. Call it the next world, if you like. The name doesn't matter. That's an intriguing theory, I replied half-heartedly. I like to look upon it uh, as a, a storage facility for souls. We can store things, physical objects, but what about a facility for intangibles, human souls? Where on Earth did you come up with an idea like that? Um, well, that's a good question, actually. Um, I think it just kind of evolved from, um, well, the fact that the story is about these clients in the storage facility who are disappearing. Well, we'll get to those. Yes. But th- even just that idea mm. of, of the storage facility, it's, it's a sort of metaphor in some ways. Yeah, it, it is. Um, I think it partly, <laughs> it connects with various things in, in the in the book. Apart from the disappearing, there's also... An earl, another self-storage facility in the story called Pharaoh's Tomb, which um, is um, based, well, I guess based sort of on the idea of the, of the pharaohs who were buried along along with their possessions and so on. So I guess they, they use that idea for the, for the franchise. But I think perhaps um, it was that which gave me the idea of a <laughs> Well, it's a, a very for, human for concern yes. in some ways. We've got our physical possessions, mm. but as history has proved out with the mm. with the pharaohs and such mm. like, the soul, the eternal, and, and things like that is, is there as well. Mm. But uh, we've got a gentleman uh, running this facility, Ken, mm. Ken Guy. Um, a bit dissolute, isn't he? <laughs> How would you describe Ken? Uh, well... I would describe him as, um, well, perhaps he's, a, he, he's maybe a slightly troubled character. He's had he's had a, a rather, um, well, kind of checkered, che- checkered work history, <laughs> to, to say the least. Um, you know, from his his perspective, it's usually the you know some, something's gone wrong. Something it's usually you know the fault of the employer or, or some some other person. Um, and uh, you know, one of the he he had he was he's now running a self storage facility yes but in in the past he had been employed by this company Pharaoh's Tomb and there was some 
sort of uh, what he describes to us, you know, an unpleasant episode, which led to his, his dismissal from that. But that there you know, seems he blames to be the boss. several yeah. unpleasant episodes yeah. in uh, Ken's life. Mm. When I started working at Pharaoh's Tomb in Box Hill North, things weren't going so well for me. I'd resigned, technically speaking, from my last job due to an ongoing difference of opinion with my supervisor, a comprehensive <clears throat> who'd had it, had it in for me from the outset. Maybe the stress of the situation was too much because I didn't leave my flat for the next three months. I passed that time obsessively playing Jethro Tull's Songs from the Wood, a foretaste of the prog rock I would come to embrace more fully. Meanwhile, Mum covered the rent. I didn't feel good about that. She was getting on in years, and it isn't right for her to be paying my bills. Mm. So not just a checkered career, he's also a sort of non-entity in many ways. Uh <laughs> yes, I, I guess you could uh, you could describe him as uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a non-entity. It's a bit of a well, he's, he's an unfortunate kind of person, I think. Not an a, yeah. not an heroic character, we would say. No, definitely not. So, how no. does that become fodder for literature? <laughs> a character that doesn't succeed. Succeed? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I seem to um, thrive on on banality when it comes to writing. I I get um, I, I like to take those very extremely ordinary situations and people and um try and you know focus in on them and and then you can usually find something uh peculiar or but that bizarre would, about them that's know? what could be said for almost anybody's that's true life yes exactly. uh quite de- lives of quite desperation mm. as we worked out the quote earlier uh and the banal in our lives mm. and yet that is the fodder for literature more often than not we have another character coming mm. in here bruce and it's mm. Bruce that's leading Ken astray. Now, we first notice Bruce as a bit of an obsessive-compulsive type character, don't we? That's right. He, um, <laughs> he, he seems to thrive on, on the, you know, the procedures of uh, self-storage. Uh, you know, the story opens with him quite obsessively, obsessively uh, lining up trolleys. And uh, making sure the wheels are all aligned exactly. yeah. in the correct way. But then he sort of um, encourages Ken to do certain things. What is that? Um, <laughs> well, it, you know, that begins when they first encounter each other. That is back when they're, they're both... Uh, working at, at this, uh, they were working Pharaoh's together tomb. at Box Hill, and now That's they're right. up in Queensland. Now they've yes, since uh, relocated, Ken has purchased his own facility, which is slowly uh, going down Falling the tube, into I suppose. Yeah, yeah, but um, yes, they they um, are discovering. Well, of late, you know, people defaulting on their on their rent, people who who rent those facilities is is not uncommon. But but the, in, of late, uh, a lot of people seem, there seems to be a spate of people who are just disappearing and then leaving storage containers full of quite uh, valuable and know, sometimes items. not so valuable things. Sometimes, but yeah. there's a procedure involved when that happens. Yes, isn't there? Well, uh, Ken has yeah well under under i guess you could say under bruce's uh encouragement he's he takes this stuff that's been left behind and he takes it to this other person uh by the name of kelvin gad who's a kind of an ebay maestro and he he sells a lot of this stuff and uh in order to try and save the facility he puts the money back into it 
The yeah, but earlier on, the difference yeah. of opinion in uh, the Box Hill facility was yes. that they were actually stealing. Ah, oh, yes, yes, they were um, what uh, Bruce calls augmenting their income. Um, of course, by um, by um, yes, they are removing certain Pilfering. things. Yes, and um, people, of course, aren't going to notice. Well, that's right, because they take uh, you know just a little bit from from a number of different uh, storage units. But it's it's Ken that gets caught. It is Ken who ultimately pays the price for that. And yes, that which leads him to um, relying on Uncle Dennis to move to Queensland, etc. Yes, but back to Bruce again. Um, we Bruce then takes him through that procedure uh, of when somebody defaults on their rent, and then mm. they've got legitimate access to those possessions. Exactly, and yes. so you. Make a phone call, email. If nobody replies, then the bolt cutters come out. That's right. I think there's a certain period of time. Um, uh, yeah, kind of a um, statute of limitations or, or whatever. I think after a certain period of time and attempts have been made to contact somebody who's, who's disappeared or defaulted, um, I can't remember exactly how long that, that is, but um, legally then the, you're allowed, allowed to enter their storage unit and do... Whatever you wish. Well, recoup the rent they owe or augment your Your income. income. Mm. But then I think the uh, listener can probably imagine Mm. what might occur next. But before we get on to that, the other thing about Bruce, he's got some strange ideas. I mean, a storage facility for souls is one strange idea. Here's another one. And we uh, refer to Sergeant and Greenleaf, which um, is a type of padlock yeah. here it seemed like too big a coincidence coincidence three sergeant and green leaves in a row in the space of a few weeks on the other hand as bruce no doubt would have said much bigger coincidences happened every day i recalled him claiming that airport face scanning machines the kind they use for catching terrorists have captured images of people who live in different parts of the world, aren't related, have never met, and yet look exactly the same. If that was possible, then surely so were the padlocks. So this notion of a doppelganger sort of plays into this story a little, and we can't give too much away on that one. No, but um, Bruce does seem to, um, yes, have this idea about... There are only being only so many faces to go around, um, so inevitably, you know, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of similarities between faces and between uh, faces and yes. people's behaviour yes. uh, that occurs, which then becomes a sort of interesting thread throughout the novel, which yes. the reader uh, should then follow. Um, now, yes, they've taken or they start taking advantage of their situation and we have then a litany of people. Leonard Steltzer disappears. He's got comic books. That's right. And so they can make yes. a fortune on um, collectible, sort of collectible yeah. comic books. Um, but then people like Ellen Kruger disappear. Ellen's had a particular connection. Uh, yes, Ellen is... She is somebody else who, who rents a facility uh, rents a unit in that facility she runs a business selling um, the kind of uh, mobility mobility scooters or and machines you know for for the, the elderly age. and yep. the firm um, now at some point Ken and Ellen become you could say romantically involved, <laughs> involved. 
And but then Alan complains or yes. um, and says to, to Ken, you know why we can't get back together. Ken wants to get back together, mm. but Ken's not aware of what the difficulty was that and what broke them up. No, from, from Ken's perspective, it's, it's a bit of a, a mystery. She's just suddenly kind of um, uh, shut him out and he's, he's quite persistent in, in trying to you know, find out what's going on and what, why she's not interested in, in continuing the relationship. Well, yeah. we find out that yeah. she actually uh, ended up locked in her own storage facility at one point. Yes, so that might have had something to do with it. But who was yeah. to blame for that? Perhaps well, the reader will have to uh, find that out for themselves. Yes. Uh, and whether that's a logical explanation for what occurred. Um, and, of course, Kelvin Gadd uh, mm -hmm. disappears, and as you mentioned previously, he was the one that was fencing yes. these goods. Um, and so all of these people disappear off the face of the earth. The earth yes. And it becomes a rather macabre black comedy in that regard was that well obviously your intention what's the sort of uh, attributes of black comedy then in in this particular story yeah. well uh, <laughs> the black comedy is um well it's 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 probably a bit more understated perhaps than in you know the familiar kind of mm. story where people are, are disappearing um well, it's sort it's of not, delightful when yeah. these people start disappearing. Yeah. Yes, yes, not necessarily people who who are um, clients of the facility either. Well, yes. <laughs> we end up uh, because the the novel ends in Central Australia, mm. where we find another storage facility. We do actually have the disappearance of a backpacker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so well, that's getting a bit uh, close to the bone in some ways, but yeah. that then brings us into a very abstract domain in some ways what were you doing there what was the po point of that setting um i think um it's because at a certain point earlier in the story bruce has mentioned that um you know if things ever get too much for him i think that's the f phrase he uses that this is the place that he will he will go because he uh, at, at an earlier point in the story he'd kind of after the pharaoh's tomb fiasco um bruce kind of disappeared for a few for some years and then it turns out that he'd gone you know to central australia and was staying in a um caravan park there well so, a lot of disreputable people yeah. have ended up yes sort of disappearing into the northern territory mm. but the storage facility then mm. is rather unbelievable uh type purposefully Unbelievable where you've got him located. Yes, yes. And um, in many ways, that's where our story sort of culminates. That's right. In that, mm. uh, in that ending, uh, in a storage facility for souls. And Ken's left on the side of the road wondering about his future. So the book is Disappearing Off the Face of the Earth. The author, David Cohen, and it's a Transit Lounge publication, Jan. Well, the only connection between David's book and my author today, Leah Hills, is Central Australia because that's the beautiful photograph used at the front of the book. Leah, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, listeners can tell that Leah is a woman, but this isn't the voice that's used to tell this story. 
Who's telling the story of the crying place? Um, so the story is told by Saul, who's in his mid thirties. It's a contemporary tale, and he's a bit of a, a bit of a wanderer. He spent a lot of years on the road. He comes from a fairly working class background. And where is that background? Uh, Tasmania, so um, actually in an area where I was teaching years ago. And it's described in the book, a quote, a place made of water, abundant and harnessed, and, and harnessed. And we know about Tassie with all the damming and everything, but uh, he and his best friend Jed, they, well, Jed never even considered travelling around Australia. He was done with it, he said, with places that had no history that tried to contain you. So Saul and Jed left Tassie, and where did they travel to? Uh, well, they, they travelled all over the place, but particularly what, what we see in the novel as flashbacks um, is the Sahara Desert and the travels that they did on motorbikes through the Sahara. Yeah, and what drew them to the deserts? Uh, well, when you come from a place of water, there's something incredibly exotic, I think, about the desert. And some, somewhere like the Sahara is, is, is couched in romanticism. Uh, so and they they've both had this desire to get away from their from their origins and as Jed said a place well you know he, he revisits the statement but as a teenager he believed it was a place without history mm. um, so, so we've got these yeah. two friends so full of life with shared stories but time and um, and work separates them until well, we start at the very ha- beginning of the book what happened to Jed. Yeah, so Jed, um, he, he'd been working in a Pujanjara community in the centre of Australia uh, and some things had gone wrong and he headed back to Melbourne and um, he takes his life mm. and that is the opening of the story. So dead by his own hand. Mm. So Saul sets out to find the answers and he drives from Sydney down to Melbourne to where Jed was living mm. and he went into Jed's uh, room and what did he take from that room? Uh, he finds a photograph of Jed's uh, girlfriend that he that he knew about but had never met, who was a Pichinjara woman named Nara, and this sets off a you know and sets in motion a whole journey to the centre to try and find her and see if if she can help him find answers. So he he doesn't go to Jed's funeral. He instead. He gets in the car and drives and drives. Yeah. I mean, they'd lived a life that was always in motion. It was part of their, their understanding of the world. And he needed to honour his friend's death and also his life in the seeking of answers. And going to, you know, a very staid, organised funeral, uh, that just wasn't going to cut it for him. So, Leah, let's just hear a little bit from page 188 from okay. The Crying Place. Even in absentee, he was more present than most of the people around me. I couldn't explain it, had rarely felt the need to. It would be like trying to rationalise the wind or the stars. But Jed was a fact that I could no longer rely on. He was, I was on my own now. And it was becoming gallingly clear to me I was not equipped. Oh, look, he's so lonely. He And he's driving these immense areas through to Lake Eyre and finally to Cooper Pedy. And it's at Cooper Pedy that he met Ziggy. Tell us a bit about Ziggy. So Ziggy, you know, she's she's never terribly clear about what she does, but in the back of my mind, she uh, she works in the opal trade, mm. um, but not legally. Um, I met a few interesting characters when I was in Cuba, so because I researched it all on the road, the whole story. Um, oh, and she's uh, she's of Germ- she's from Germany, and she's overstayed her visa, but she's the right kind of illegal immigrant. 
So she's kind of getting away with it for the moment. Um, and she joins Jen. She's the one who sort of initiates, kind of ironically really, given that she's German and he's Australian, but she she initiates him in, into the desert. And this is a experience that I common had, commonly had both in the Sahara and in the Australian desert. I met a lot of Germans who know the desert very well. So I kind of wanted to honour that in that character. You had Ziggy and she spoke about growing up in the Black Forest in Germany, but she also dreamed of the desert. And you have her saying, you can't know a desert without understanding its waters. Mm. And this was the whole linking. And this is a beautiful piece from page 221. Mm. I'd also like you, uh, Leah Hills to read from The Crying Place. A story is like a river. It has a source. It has its tributaries, some as far-reaching and expansive as memory, others a thin trickle, so tenuous their influx is barely noticed. Some stories arrive like torrents, unpredictable and short-lived, whereas others are always there, broad and slow-moving and dependable, their undercurrents barely detectable on the surface. Rivers connect, intersect, go underground. Mm. And of course, we just look at the name of this town right in the mental, middle of Australia called Alice Springs. Mm -hmm. And it's all of this water, these stories that are going through. The whole um, idea of dream time mixed up with these rivers and what's not there is just beautiful. But of course, um, Saul is more relaxed about the desert people in Sahara than he is relaxed about the Aborigines living in Alice Springs. Yeah, well, he's, he, he comes to the centre of Australia with sort of a whole lot of political, emotional and historical baggage, as we all do. Um, whereas in the Sahara, he was kind of free of that. So what I was trying to capture in the, in, the, in, that, in the road novel part of the story is that sort of movement from urban Australia that we all know very, very well into the centre is, is this discomfort that we often feel. And I was trying to also capture those sort of moments of racism. We think we're not racist, but when we're confronted... Um, with our past, with with the guilt that's inherent in confronting um, the the very real contemporary consequences of our history, um, you know, then then things pop up. You know, and there's a case where he's talking <coughs> talking about having to get a permit to go yeah, into a particular yeah. area, and you know, you know, he's just kind of really put out by that. Even though he's a bit of a lefty, you know, and he's uh, he should be very open to, uh, you know, uh, land rights and and all that, you know that goes with that. But there there are some. I wanted to capture some of those emotional states that, that emerge. That you have to kind of, he talks about beating down his inner redneck. Mm. Um, so that was important for me to really capture those things that we think we don't have. Sort of, you describe him as full of wandering um, uh, with the belief that all you need is the right question. Mm-hmm. And so he gets to Alice Springs and he meets a woman called Lou who tells him straight, you thought you'd just leap right in there, get what you came for and piss off again. You don't know anything, do you? Sorry business, any of it. Grieving is a very sensitive subject. And mm. this is where this book is just fantastic. It, 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 we look at grieving and how it's done in so many different cultures. Mm. Like mourning caps, I'd never heard of those. Can you tell us just briefly about those? Yeah, so um, I came across this amazing story about mourning caps that were found in the Simpson Desert. So they were um, caps that were made by widow, they're often referred to as widow caps that were made out of gypsum, and the, which was mixed with water and then layered on the head. And then someone who's grieving feels the weight of their grief, literally. And as the hair grows, then the cap tends to drop off. And that's the marking, you know, often in, in Aboriginal mm, culture we see... Things that mark passage, the passage of grief. 
Well, scarification so, yeah. is often there and mm-hmm. sorry camps. Now, um, when Saul actually did tell Nara the news of Jed, what mm-hmm. was Nara's reaction? Well, she just she screams, screams and, and, and drops the phone and he hasn't really thought about how she would receive that news. He's never even met her. He does it by phone. So he's, he's, he, he, bl- he makes a lot of cultural blunders. He makes a lot of, you know, just general mm. personal <laughs> blunders. But, okay. yeah, he does make he's a, a lot of cultural blunders so in this process. when uh, Saul actually does get into this remote, remote country area, which is absolutely fascinating to read. Look, this is a big book. It's mm. about um, 470 pages. And I must say, I was hanging on every one of the beautiful, beautiful lines. You know, yeah. there's so much desert exposed in this both in Sahara and also in Australia but the sand you know it's not deserts are so much more than just sand Mm -hmm. and oh just what what's in here is just wonderful in fact you have um uh I think it's Z sort of saying if I wrote a poem about this place about this part of the world I would only use nouns Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, because you could just overuse those adjectives again and again. And mm-hmm. this is what this book hasn't done. It's given us oh, just po- poetry to convey the sights and, and the sounds and, and the bird noises. And, you know, you feel the spinifex. You can see the, wo- uh, the willy willies. It's just a, a fantastic book. Fantastic. Parts of the book are divided into um, words from, I'm going to get this wrong, from the Pinchinjara language. Pinchinjara language. Mm-hmm. Which you learnt. Yeah, well, it became increasingly um, important for me as I was going through the process. I was learning it in community sort of ad hoc, but then I ended up doing an intensive course at the University of South Australia because it is effectively the second language of the novel. And even though I was, you know, working with linguists and, you know, experts in the language, I needed to have a good understanding um, of the language in order to be able to incorporate that in the sense of the community. It just felt so real, so real to be there and sort of so, um, well... Learning. I was constantly learning as I was reading this book, which was just wonderful. The other thing I learned about was how you actually wrote this book. Yes, or rather recorded it. Yeah, you, mm-hmm. um, Dragon mm. Software. Yeah, so I, um, what I decided to do to get closer to traditional uh, forms of storytelling and to be very responsive to the landscape, because we were doing, the book was being written on the road, um, I decided to use a, a voice recognition software, a Dragon Software, uh, in order to just dictate. So as its first person, I went into character and I would just, you know, begin with the landscape and then go into Saul's head and be telling the story. And I was ended up with 55,000 words at the end of three weeks in the process of doing this, which was just extraordinary. And it also... What was really amazing was that it just it picks up not only even though you use a directional mic it picks up not only your voice but everything that's around you, so it picks up things like bird noises mm. and wind noises that get translated into words on your screen and they just pop up on your screen as you as as you're there. So you end up with the scene you may remember there was a scene where his car breaks down <gasps> and he's talking to a bowerbird and he says, oh, "What am I going to do now?" And the bowerbird says to him, "Push, push." Well, that actually happened to me when I was writing that scene. It came up on my screen, "Push, push," and it was it, it a bowerbird that had been watching me had 
you know, their imitators, I don't know if it was trying to imitate me or whatever it was doing, it was chirping away. And it literally came up on my screen as push push, which is the most incredible coincidence. So I had to honour that in, in within the novel and, and have, having a conversation and going, well, what would you know about mechanics? You know, I'm stuck out here in the <laughs> desert. But So, yeah, using, the irony was using a really high-tech software, you know, made me listen to country in a way that I may never have. Well, look, listen to country. I read country and I've never, never experienced it as beautifully written as Leah Hall's book, The Crying Place. Look, it's a novel. The questions, the inland desert of Australia, is it the dead centre or is it the heart of Australia? So Leah Hill's The Crying Place by Alan and Unwin. Fantastic.